Hark, it's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 38, Eight Black Horses. My name is Paul Abbott, and to review this book, I'm joined by Morgan Brown. Hello. And Stephen Royston. Hello. And you'll all be very pleased to know that I'm giving up on writing extremely laboured jokes for this part of the introduction to the episodes to save me a little bit of sanity in these troubled times. It was getting quite hard to crowbar references into (laughs) into every single version of time I read out your names. So So there we go. Well, you'll be excused from that, I'm sure. Yeah, it was. This book was the straw that broke the camel's back. The straw that oh, there was nearly one there. Uh, Horses eat straw. What do they know? They they eat straw. They're straw adjacent. Lie on it. I don't know. What do they do with it? So they eat it and lie on it. Do they? Yeah, probably a bit of both. Stand stand on it. Look at it. (laughs) That's one of their favourite hobbies. Anyway, everyone knows what to do if they're enjoying the show. Rate and review it wherever you're listening and let people know if you think they'll enjoy it. Because we're now 29 years into this book series. Not the not the podcast series. It might feel like we've been doing it for 29 years. But we're 29 years into the book series with only 20 years left and only 17 books left. So we're, we're motoring along because we've hit mid-1980s here, 1985. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because it feels like it was about 1971, about three books ago. Yeah. But I think such as he rattles through them, really, doesn't he? They really do march along. And save for those last three that we've done where it's, they've suddenly got quite chunky. It, it, yeah, we got through the 70s quite quick, it felt, even though we're only doing one podcast a month. So, mm. you know, but here we are, 1985. Indeed. This one's not a chunky one. I've got this in hardback, so it's difficult to know how it compares lengthwise to the others. But mm. is this just regular length? It's sort of mid-range for for, for an eighty-seven precinct, I think, isn't it? It's not not the shortest, but by no means the longest. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a step down in length from the last three. I think we've done mm. anyway. Yeah. But yeah, with well, a, a hardback edition, oh, that's a little teaser Ooh, for our fancy. bonus episode, well, there, isn't it? I think I've got. The next few are all in hardback, actually. Certainly at this point in my collection, I have more hardbacks suddenly come in from basically around here, which suggests to me that probably in terms of how they were being sold and promoted, Mm. there was more hardbacks in the market than there are paperbacks after the sort of mid-80s. Those hardbacks used to get in book clubs. If you joined, you could pick five books, like 99p. Yeah, I've definitely got a few of those editions uh, from around yeah. here. Yeah, those, those types of offers, maybe. And I have a suspicion that in a couple of books' time, the publishers in the UK change, so that might have something to do with it as well in terms mm. of go- going forward. Mm. But for now, let me get stuck into some 1985 contextual stuff. I've got a just a little selection of five or six bits here of, of things you might want to ponder on. So we know that politically, in terms of the states and the UK, Margaret Thatcher's still prime minister. Ronald Reagan is on his second term as of January 1985, I believe. Gorbachev was, uh, came in in 1985, that's one thing I know. Indeed, yes, that was one of my points on here. So he becomes the general secretary of the Communist Party, which makes him 
the de facto leader of the Soviet Union, doesn't it? It does, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that happens in March uh, of 1985. But if we go back to January 1985, there's an exciting technological thing here. If you were to look out the window at the road outside your house, what vehicles do you imagine you'd see outside? Everyone, anywhere in the world right now, if we all look outside... I think you would see nothing, uh, for everything would be obscured by the Sinclair C5. <laughs> That's it! There we go! It'd be... Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Everyone's got a Sinclair C5, or two two each sometimes, I think, these days. Why yeah. I think it was a bit maligned, though. I think if... Yeah, I don't know. Well, would you like to explain have... what a Sinclair C5 was? Well, I don't really know. Would you describe it as a car? Not no, really. No. Like, certainly a vehicle with wheels that you sat in, but like yeah. a one-seated... Go kart like, thing. Yeah, very low to the ground. Is it it's sort of motorized but pedal assisted? Is is that the idea? I don't know. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, but yeah, you would just look like you were having a nervous breakdown if anybody saw you. <laughs> on, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, I think they were supposed to be like an, a bit of an idea. This entrepreneur called Clive Sinclair, who had invented the, one of the UK's first personal computers, I suppose, hadn't he? Mm. Uh, so a bit of a pioneer, but never really took off. Never, never, never seen one of you. I, I wonder whether I've seen one in a museum or something like yeah. that. I must have been to a transport museum or something where they've had one. I know, I know, he um, was from Cambridge and used to drink in a pub called the Baron of Beef. So that's uh, <laughs> an excellent fact. That's good info. So that's, a, that's a Clive Sinker fact factoid, and I know that because I think there's a sign in there. In that pub. Yeah. Well, I wonder if he ever rocked up to that in his Sinclair C5. Probably. Right in. Big wide door right to the bar. (laughs) (laughs) C5 corridor. Yeah, I was just thinking there. I was trying to remember. I feel like I have seen one, and I feel like I've seen it in a flea market in Liverpool. I was going to say the same thing. It was in the the old flea market in the Queen Centre, I think. So this was a was yeah huge flea market in a warehouse in central Liverpool, and I'm pretty oh, yes. sure it was up on like stacked up in 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 amongst dented like chairs. And, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, I have the same memory, so I'm I'm fairly certain that must be a real thing. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, just to to give an overview for people listening, essentially what these guys have said is true. I think it was like a three-wheeler electric go-kart, mm-hmm. essentially. A one, yeah, it, it a one person like a vehicle. death trap, really. <laughs> yeah, but it was going to revolutionise uh, traffic in, in the UK. And basically, seven months later, it, production's cancelled. They made 17,000 of them. How many of those they actually sold, I don't know. It was it was ludicrous. It was like riding around in your shoe. <laughs> So there you go. See, there's not much you can do to revolutionise travel in in terms of inventing a whole new vehicle. Why not try and improve the ones we've got? Mm-hmm. At least he tried. He tried. He did try. And he was... He's sort of seen as a bit of an eccentric, isn't he? A classic inventor, eccentric type yeah. character. He looks like one as well, doesn't he? Like yeah. bald head kind of... An egghead. Professor Hare. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's move on from that weirdness to March the 31st, 1985, and a new sporting event takes place. I wonder if Morgan can think what it is. Uh, Would that be WrestleMania? WrestleMania 1. Yes. Madison Square Garden. 
I can't. I have watched this, and I'm pretty sure I probably watched it with you on a video at some point. Mm. But I can't remember who was in it. Uh, it it's it's definitely going to be a Hulk Hogan main event, isn't it? But uh, it's it's an odd one because it a lot of the kind of the really really famous uh, WWF as was then kind of superstars hadn't quite arrived by that point. It would yeah. still have been a lot of the kind of hangovers from the sort of WWWF era of the 70s still at that point. Probably Bruno Sammartino, George the Animal Steel, all, all those, those kind yeah, of the uh, characters. Which was the one which was him versus uh, an over-the-hill Andre the Giant? Was that WrestleMania 2? Oh, it might have been. That was like one of the early ones because like Andre the Giant was kind of a bit past it, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, Andrew the Drain got past past it pretty quick because it, uh, yeah, he, he, his, his body was basically falling apart, wasn't it? Bless him. Yeah. Um, I think that might have been number three. I, th- I feel like number two might have been um, Hulk Hogan versus King Kong Bundy. I'm I, I kind of embarrassed that I'm coming out with all this, but uh, there we go. No, that's fine. Good info. But yeah, so WrestleMania starts in March, March the thirty first, nineteen eighty five. July the 13th, 1985, we have a huge music event in the Live Aid concert. And perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about music. But mm. I, re- I remember that being on television. It was a huge yep. thing. And I've got one more little thing, uh, something that's probably blighted everybody's life since this happened. November the 20th, 1985, Microsoft launched Windows 1.0. Oof. Which I've never seen personally, but... Yeah. Uh, that's where it starts, and here we are, a mere how many years later? <laughs> Thirty-five years later, and we're on Windows Ten. Speak for yourself. I'm on Vista. Oh yeah, you want to be a <laughs> yeah XP or or Millennium Edition? Yeah, <laughs> those are popular. So there's some stuff from 1985. I'll give you the McBain Hunter rundown as well from 1985, and it's very short. You basically have eight black horses comes out. And you also have a Matthew Hope novel in Snow White and Rose Red. And that's it for 1985 for McBain. It doesn't have anything on screen or anything like that at all. I'm sure there's lots of stuff going on, but I couldn't find basically anything other than that. So there you go. Taking it easy. Yeah. And uh, well, I'll probably mention it now. The next book we're going to do doesn't come out till 1987. So I don't know Mm. whether 86 was a bit of a year off. And I, I... I'd better check in as well at some point on his health history because it'll start to play a part in his activities mm-hmm. around this time, but I'm not sure if it's now. Anyway, so not much going on there other than the book we're about to review and a Matthew Hope novel. So let's get to Eight Black Horses and I'll do the quick rundown of the facts and figures. Published in Arbor House in the hardback cover in America, Avon in 1986 for the paperback in America. And in the UK, we still have Hamish Hamilton and we have Pan, with the Pan edition comes out in 1987. So not masses different to the last couple. Copyright is registered on the 31st of July, 1985, and the dedication is for Vanessa Holt, about whom I found a couple of references, I think, which is basically that she is or was a literary agent or ran a literary company. But quite what their relationship was, I couldn't find. But it, there was references to her in the archive in terms of letters. So let's get stuck into this story because, in a strange way, I don't think there's masses to talk about. There's not as much in this book as there has been in the last three, say. But 
it's a deaf man book. Hey. Yeah, you're not wrong there. It's like full of nothing, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's in a, terms of a good overview, really. Oh, it's it's enjoyable, nothing though, right? It, it is, yeah. But in terms <laughs> of like what happens, not a lot. That's very true. Yeah, we, perhaps before we get into the actual story itself, let's have a little bit of a deaf man recap. Because yeah, we forget we've had three books with him so far. We've had the he- this, be, this being the fourth. This is the fourth. Yeah, we've had the heckler in in nineteen sixty, which was book twelve. And what what's the caper in that? That's is a it, the bank. Is that the one where well, he's writing to all the shops? Is yep. extortion? No, it's where he's ringing the shops up and saying, "Get out, or I'll do this." Yeah, or the that, other. that one. Yeah, that's yeah, the one, yeah, yeah. And that's the cover for setting up a bank robbery, which he's also he also tries to cover up with a mass bombing campaign. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you remember how he was thwarted in that one? I can't, no. It's the ice cream truck, is that the oh, one? Oh, yeah, that's it. That's yeah. it, yeah. Um, a copper the, tries to buy an ice cream, doesn't he, from the getaway vehicle. <laughs> yeah, so we've we're established in the first book that this guy is using a pseudonym. He wears a hearing aid. They refer to him as the deaf man. And... He's a, a schemer. He likes to make elaborate plans, form a sort of a gang around him, like a caper gang, who he intends to betray wherever he can. And he likes money. And that's his first appearance. His second appearance is in Fuzz, which is book 22 in 1968. And that has some extortion stuff going on. That's the one with the threatening letters and the city officials being killed. Oh, the bomb under the mayor's bed. Yeah. <laughs> but do, can you remember how how he's thwarted in that one? Uh, no. It's, yeah, well, that might speak to the story, really. <laughs> I think the lack of remember. So it, basically, because his campaign to make this money doesn't really work, he, he decides he wants to wind up the 87th Precinct by killing someone with the na- with the initials of the mayor. Mm-hmm. by sending them off on a wild goose chase and this and accidentally comes face to face with the cops who are already in a shop staking out for something else. Oh, of course, yes. I do remember now, yeah. So it's a bad luck story for the deaf man. But similar mm-hmm. modus operandi, lots of planning, lots of schemes, another yes. gang. And then we have Let's Hear It for the Deaf Man, which is book 27 from 1973, which is the bank robbery where he's got this trick timing thing. Oh, yeah, the two bank robberies on the same day. Yeah. And it's <laughs> the story where he also gets Corella beaten up and steals his ID and stuff like that, which has some implications for this. But, yeah, again, his overly elaborate plan to make a load of money whilst casually getting people to murder people is thwarted, essentially. So that's where we've left him back in 1973. And we've got to 1985 and uh, he's back again. So what do we think of the deaf man now, you know, at this point of the the stage? Is he deserving well, of his it, reputation as a recurring villain? Uh, yeah, I think so. Because his schemes are always fairly daft, aren't they? Mm. But involve lots of horrible murdering. Yeah. So he's a highly unpleasant individual. He, he is. Yet his antics are always pretty entertaining uh, for yeah. us. But yeah, and... To some extent, he is a, a sort of a proper criminal mastermind. He's he's 
definitely he enjoys um uh showing off his intelligence and and uh, pointing out to the cops that they're no no match for him intellectually but i, I think his elaborate planning always kind of ends up being his undoing if he just did something more straightforward he'd get away with it whereas uh like like all of your kind of classic um sort of scheming supervillains he, he always manages to <laughs> come up with some kind of ludicrously elaborate plan that's its own undoing really yeah yeah definitely i mean and I, there's oh we've talked about this before the comparison to being professor moriarty to sherlock holmes but i don't think that it really holds up particularly as a hmm. comparison necessarily especially well i don't know maybe it does because in this book this is like the um the distilling of everything about the deaf man we've had so far it's got an elaborate scheme for a robbery it's got a cast of people, although he doesn't really have a gang in a room together at any one point. It's also got, but it, what it's also got that sort of popped into a couple of the books is his increasing madness at the 87th precinct and Corella particularly, <laughs> like his complete hell bent on revenge type thing. And also his sexual magnetism, which is sort of his superpower. We're, we're given to believe in the books really comes to the fore in this one quite a lot in quite a, a couple of quite descriptive passages yes descriptive is one way of putting it definitely yeah 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 it's like blofeld meets moriarty meets parker possibly a bit well it's funny you say that because i do I kind of always, in the passages in this, and you quite often get the Death Man, it's one of the very few where you have good guys, chapters, and then like more from the criminals element, don't you? Which you don't get in many of the other books. So when you're reading those in this, I always immediately think of Parker, and then I just think, well, Parker would get away with this because he wouldn't (laughs) waste his time in all this total nonsense that the Death Man spends so much effort and time doing you know so yeah, yeah similar but like he's not as cold and as uh, emotionless as the as, as parker parker spends a lot less time congratulating himself on his own brilliance i think as well yeah see parker's always undone by some liability uh, <laughs> in his team which in when you read the Parker books, you can see coming from a million miles away, and that's one of the the enjoyments of those because you're like, uh-uh, the, the guy who likes a drink is involved. It'll <laughs> be, ooh, yeah. What's this guy's deal? He's got a what's his axe to grind with this coal mining company or something? <laughs> and you know that in some shape or form will be the total ruin of all these amazingly planned uh, capers. But with the death man, he does really bring it on himself, like you say. Because, uh, you know, he, he just generally hires a lot of fairly dim career criminals who've spent most of their career in jail. Yeah. Yeah, in the knowledge that he's just going to um, betray them, really. Yeah. Indeed. And for anyone who's not familiar with the Parker we're referring to there, this is the Parker in Richard Stark's novels, isn't it? It is, yeah. And Richard Stark being Donald E. Westlake and not Parker, Andy Parker from this book, who we will no doubt get to at some point whilst we're discussing this particular book, because it's got some interesting information about him in this. But this novel carries on like literally immediately from the end of the one before 
because the end of lightning we get the first of basically 11 envelopes which is part of a block of 12 things being sent to the 87th precinct and so we open in this book with a corpse in a park and all the while that this book goes along and this takes place starting at the end of october and runs through to the start of january the next year of things arriving at the 87th precinct sent by they assume the deaf man Mm. and it's a very bizarre thing because it's just one story of this constant barrage of stuff arriving to the 87th precinct that they can't do anything about no it doesn't kind of like mean anything really either does it initially well even at the end it well, it's yeah, it's the the elaborate nature of his revenge scheme against the eighty seventh precinct, which he doesn't need to do. <laughs> he really doesn't. No. And and th- there's a robbery wrapped up in it, but that almost seems like an afterthought on this part, doesn't it? Yeah. It got the f- a little bit of the feeling that is this one of those where he kind of came up with the title up front? <laughs> yeah, I don't know really because. Yeah, it's not sort of multiple meaning title, though, is it? It's no, and it's it's just because I was reading most of it, thinking, well, why on earth he called this eight black horses when you know, obviously, he could have called it almost anything really uh, to do to do with those messages. Yeah, twelve yeah. roasted pigs, eleven cop uh, cult specials, you know, or yeah. ten DD forms or something. And maybe just thought eight black horses had a bit more of a ring to it. Yeah, maybe. I think it's certainly more poetic anyway. It is, rather. Well, poetic might not be the word, but uh, yeah, enigmatic, definitely. But yeah, like I say, there's not much in terms of of twisty-turny A or B plots in this. It's it's just a series of bizarre things with what should be a standalone robbery caper in the middle of it that should have nothing to do with the 87th Precinct. Except for the fact that, like everything that the deaf man does, it goes wrong. <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah, yeah. you get the feeling that even though he knows the city very well, he doesn't actually live there. So every time he comes back to do a job, he thinks he might as well just try and annoy the 87th Precinct, annoy and or kill them all whilst he's <laughs> there just for the hell of it. Yeah. Because if he lived in the city, surely he would just be pestering them all the time. I think so. It, yeah, he does seem like he's above everything, doesn't he? That's part of the, the deaf man's character is that he is this suave, sophisticate. He he knows all about the derivation of in, the English language and where all these words oh, yeah. come from, from and stuff. And he likes to show off to himself as much as anyone in, in the book. And so, yeah, but we start with a corpse in the park that's completely nude and they, they've got nothing to go on, really. The first person to speak is Monaghan. So Monaghan and Monroe, first pe- people to speak in this book. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's quite hard to discuss because it is literally a load of stuff gets sent to them. Something else happens sort of in the middle. It ends. <laughs> but it's worth adding, I suppose, that this the, the corpse that they find, they don't link to the deaf man, nor do they think it's really got anything to do with him. For ages, really. That's quite near the end, isn't it? Or, yeah. You know, back third, I suppose. Um, yeah. But they can't... They, they don't... It's one of those, like, quite often these books, like, um, the plot proceeds on, like, a uh, a day-by-day basis, but 
like a couple of months go past in this book, doesn't it? At least two, two, two and a half months, maybe. I wrote down a timeline to try and work it out while I was doing my notes. So lightning is when this book starts. Essentially, this book starts in the book before, on the last page mm. of the book before. Like October, is it? Yeah. The first date we find out when the corpse is discovered is Tuesday, the 25th of October. Yeah, and so. then we basically have stuff all through November, all through December, right until the very end of December. Then we have everything happening up to the 5th of January. Yes, yeah, so that's, that's a, lot, a big time spread for one of the, uh, his novels, I think. Mm. Especially when the majority of the action is an envelope arriving at the police station. Yeah, because they can't identify the... Uh, I'd, uh, the corpse can they for a long time they've just got absolutely no leads to go off yeah oh, that's right and then they they, uh, they spend quite a while sort of in the futile kind of attempt to find out where which bank she might have been working at assuming that she did work in a bank because uh, she's got experience as a cashier and yeah that's she, obviously a, a dead end if they looks at other jobs that someone with that experience might have looked at then it might have actually led them to yeah yeah where she actually ended up being employed yeah there's a fair amount of folding up of government officials isn't there who can't really help because forms aren't filed in particular orders and (laughs) oh yeah it's a lot of uh, administrative police work i think yeah you're definitely right because like you say yeah you're ringing up the tax people and say well where where are the forms and it's like well they haven't been processed yet well they'll be processed in a few months time if they're for this region and it's yeah although one of the uh, typical administrative duties which is corella trying to find a phone number for someone is shifted. This is the first book where he says the police HQ now had a special phone number you could ring up to talk to to get them to get you a phone number so he doesn't have to go on the phone to people all the time and be told, uh, I'm sorry, but where's your authorization? So he's <laughs> he's skewered one of the tropes of the books in this, in this one. A, a, yeah, an 87th uh, bingo entry that is no more. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye out to see whether it still crops up, but yeah, was, I noticed that in the there's a lot of talk about the central HQ coming into this now, which mm. must have reflected some sort of reorganisation of the the police force around this period, because we have a lot more to do with headquarters, not in this book particularly, but uh, yeah. I, li- I like the guy, is he phoning him up at headquarters when he's um, they get sent the, uh, the photostatted uh, uh, police shields and he gets him to f- find whose police shield it might be from the number and it's some detective who died in 1850 or something yeah it's like num- shield number 79 or something daft like yeah that. And the, the guy on the phone is like you are you kidding me <laughs> and it's some guy yeah who's been dead for about 150 years yeah there's some good little moments like that in there there's no i don't think there's any out and out comedy characters in this book as well actually now i think about it uh just you know funny things happen but uh, yeah, there's no no classic zany man in it. No. But what I did want to mention was, and someone I think had mentioned this in on our social media when I said we were doing this, is, and I was so pleased because there's a sequence in which the deaf man picks someone up in a bar, who we should talk about this character of Naomi Schneider in a little bit. But he's got this the deaf man in a bar pretending to be Steve Carella. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
which is sort of a, a follow-on from Let's Hear It for the Deaf Man, where he's got his ID and stuff. So he's Deaf Man's there, and he mentions in the background the new McCartney single was oh, playing. Oh, yeah, I noticed that. I was going to ask you, what, what on earth is that? Ah, so mid-80s McCartney. Frog chorus. Well, <laughs> if only it was. I like the idea that the Deaf Man would go to a bar that was so sophisticated it was playing We All Stand Together. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I'd go there. <laughs> but you know what it's not as simple as just saying the book came out in 1985 it was 1985 because all the dates in the book as in thursday 1984 on, well 1983 in actual fact Oof. except that it also refers to the thatcher bombing oh it oh. does yeah yeah and, and which that was 81 was it Something well no like that, that was october 1984 <gasps> um. yeah so there was an attempt on the uh, the government, really, wasn't there? Thatcher in particular in 1984 by the IRA in a hotel in Brighton. Yeah. And so the character that the deaf man's brought in here to be an explosives expert refers to this Thatcher bomb. So although all the, all the dates are literally 1983, because th- a Thursday, October, whatever was that, a thing from 1984 has happened. So we can't mm. take it literally. So here's my, here's my thesis on the McCartney connection. For everyone. So if it was 1983, you'd have two options. You have basically Say, 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 which is... Right, the, okay. The we one. pick which one we think it is, then? I've already got an idea, but I'm going to wait and hear what the options right. are. Okay, yeah. Well, there's Say, 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 which was a single he did with Michael Jackson. Yeah. And McBain makes no mention of a Michael Jackson-McCartney no, collaboration. No, it's not that one, then. Or it would be Pipes of Peace, except Ooh. in America, Pipes of Peace wasn't the A-side of a single. The A-side was... <laughs> So Bad, which was the flip side of the single, Pipes of Peace, which is a song that I'm not so familiar with because it was never a single over here. Nah, so it's neither of them two then. So if it's 1984, you either have We All Stand Together, which I don't think was actually released in America. (laughs) Definitely, it must have been, yeah. Or No More Lonely Nights. Ooh. If if you're going to a singles bar, that's the one I think that would be most likely to be playing. Yeah, I think it's definitely No More Lonely Nights, it would be. See, in my mind, it was Pipes of Peace. <laughs> I'd love it to be Pipes of Peace, because it is a Christmassy song as well, and That's this is set thinking. in the run-up towards the holidays, isn't it? But, yeah, it doesn't make sense if the if we trust that the Thatcher bombings happened, and so the No More Lonely Nights, ah. So it's- See, the thing is, he would be, he would be writing it referring to dates from the calendar that he would have on his desk, wouldn't he? Which would have obviously all the actual dates from 1983. Mm-hmm. But in terms of events, he would be importing yeah. stuff actually as it was happening, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Let's... So he would be looking retrospectively for his dates, but he would be looking topically for his topical it... things to mention, wouldn't he? Yeah, because he does also refer to something that something else that happened in 1984, which was he talks about the cops in New York solving a, a murder in a 24 hours. Oh yeah, and it's that was the murder of someone called Caroline Rose Eisenberg, who was a, a an undergraduate and a dancer or uh, or an actress or something, who w- was murdered, and they solved that case quite quickly. And he, mm. Pete Burns uses that as an example of well, if they can do this in New York, why can't we do that, that here? So the mystical city is mystical on its 
being a New York equivalent and also in its time frame. Because if if it was the year that the book came out, 1985, then the single would be the McCartney single would be the theme from Spies Like Us, the film. Amazing. And that, but that wasn't out till November 1985. And good lord, you wouldn't put that on your jukebox. <laughs> and you know I love McCartney, so. <laughs> so anyway, there you go. That's I've wasted everyone's time on that one. But yeah, let's say it's no more lonely it's nights. Important. It, it's important to me, you know. Another mention of something was made on uh, social media as well was our, our friend Matthew Sullivan on, on Twitter saying he wishes that McBain had written a standalone novel about and the Indian police captain who's mentioned in one of the chapters. Oh, yeah. So on page 82 in the pan edition, there's a, a little reference to while well, they're organising who's going to be off for the Christmas period or, or is it the Thanksgiving period? And it's like they say somewhere in one of the precincts uptown there's a guy from india an actual indian captain who's come over here to work yeah so it's like oh yeah imagine if he had just gone off and written a standalone novel about like this indian police captain in in isola there's all these stories going on that we'll never know yeah, you do get these little glimpses into other things that are happening in the city and it would be be amazing to sort of have a, a, a more review of that kind of expanded universe wouldn't it yeah, uh, I, think, I think there was another detective mentioned, wasn't there, in this as well, who answers the phone at some point. There is, yes. Like one a that, name that I don't recall even being mentioned, even in the list of people who aren't really ever in the books. I can't yes. remember what his name was. Detective Santoro. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is the first appearance of a Detective Santoro, and I suspect the only one, I think, from my general checking and my little dossier of names that I've got, but... Uh, yeah, but he's an 87th Precinct detective. Mm-hmm. So this scheme plays out, basically. The the deaf man's sort of saying, sending all these images to the to the team, and all the while he's hired someone to nick the stuff that he needs, to steal the stuff that he needs in order to start sending it to them afterwards, mm-hmm. which involves the crime starting to really become significant because once again he starts bombing people. So he mm. does the cars with bombs... Kills a load of horses. Literally kills eight black horses. So it's it's a weird body count of, of humans and animals. Well, I mean, what's his ultimate intention? How is he going to kill the cops of the 87th Precinct? Because it's like he wants to wipe the slate clean in mm. this book. He wants to just get rid of all of the 87th Precinct cops. Like, that's going to solve his problems. <laughs> so what's the, what's the scheme? Well, he creates a... Um... A bogus party, doesn't he? Yeah. Which he invites everyone to. So you can make sure all the 12 detectives, well, 11 detectives and a lieutenant, I suppose, are all in the squad at uh, this particular time. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, he's created a, um, a power cut in which his oppo has taken a bomb into the precinct. Yeah. In a box of which there's... Two very detailed, rather peculiar-looking photos of, isn't there? It's, it's good for images, this book. It's got a lot of those in. Yes. I bet, I bet it's a record. I bet there's no other book with as many. I'd be surprised. There's loads. Yeah. Like I, th- I think the example of him doing that, there's like loads of like little, kind of just little bits of irrele- irrelevance, isn't there? Like when the deaf man's explaining probability to... The guy who's got a 
get in the uh, do the robbery in the um, department store. It's a very deaf man thing to do, though, isn't it? He loves. Yeah, and he just goes on for ages, doesn't he? <laughs> it's sort of a throwback to the first one. Uh, explaining how many combinations there are if you've got two numbers and then three numbers. And <laughs> yeah. So he's got this, his ultimate scheme is he's going to blow up the eight cops of the 87th Precinct by gathering them all together, or rather gathering the shift of the cops that we always read about, (laughs) coincidentally, all together at some point. But along the way, he, as I say, he uses his his superpower, his sexy superpower, to, one, get the information he needs to do his robbery, which turns out to be our first corpse, and then he meets this girl in the bar, listening to the McCartney stuff, and... Mm -hmm. That's Naomi Schneider. And this is one of his big mistakes because apparently he's so powerfully sexy whilst claiming to be Steve Carella that he sends this character off looking, <laughs> hunting Carella down so she can see him. Mm. I mean, that's that's some magnetism. Yeah, it really is. And then, of course, when, when she does find the real Steve Carella, she finds him tremendously magne- mag- magnetic as well, doesn't she? Yeah. She's um, uh, highly sexed, I think, is the <laughs> the term that we use, isn't it, to That's describe that sort of a good way of describing it? Yes. Yeah, I think the deaf man sent her into a bit of a frenzy, hasn't he? I think so. Yeah, but he's playing this weird sex game with her, where he he's doing like a Russian roulette thing with his gun. That my, I mean, obviously it doesn't happen because this is a story and he's told us what happens, but he could have done this. He could have got this woman, taken her back to his place, wanting to get her involved in in his scheme or just to have fun with her or whatever it is, because he does want her to get involved in this in the robbery scheme. But he's playing this roulette game, so he could have just blown her head off in the first instance. Yeah, no, it's a bit funny because yeah, he doesn't really need her for... No, he doesn't because at all. Like for the caper though, because he, he well he wants her to be this Salvation Army uh, person, doesn't he? Yeah. So, but is that like, but with him, which doesn't seem necessary, really. I think know. Really necessary now. Yeah. So is he ends up having to do a load of the work himself, which he does. He says he doesn't like doing. He doesn't like to get his hands dirty, which is why he hires these people. And one of them was going to be this Naomi, who he's going to use as part of his cover for stealing the money from this department store on Christmas Eve when the takings would be high. And that's supposed to be his self-contained nothing-can-go-wrong scheme. But it goes wrong. He's rubbish, really, isn't he? I suppose when you think about yes. it. Yes, yeah. He's, he's, he's no Parker when it comes to planning these things. Well, on the subject of people called Parker, chapter nine in this book is one of the best bits of character backstory I think we've had in ages. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty heavy going, isn't it, that bit? It's the chapter that every third word is hate, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Essentially, what it is, is because we've not had much of Parker, really, other than he's there to be this, the horrible character. But he puts so much information in here about about Parker because we discover not only is his name not actually Andy, his first name anyway, but also like he's had a wife and he's been divorced and this has happened to him and that's happened to him. Yeah. I love it. I think it's really interesting. It's pretty great because it, it makes it makes him 
it does really flesh him out and makes him much less than much more than just a, a kind of stereotype which he could easily be and yeah kind of although you don't necessarily actually sympathize with him, it does make him a little bit more sympathetic too which is uh yeah it's, it's an interesting bit definitely yeah it kind of explains him as a bit of a character who's kind of just given up a bit hasn't he really yeah well he's basically <laughs> he's the spirit of roger haviland in a new, yes. in a new body and, but here we discover that it's more than just a, a career problem. He actually had a, a relationship, and it's, it's it's yeah, it's it's fascinating because he doesn't. McBain doesn't need to put this in here, given that Parker has almost nothing to do with this stuff in this story at all, really. But let's start to wrap this up, though. I think what we need to mention is there's a reference to Hitchcock in here. Oh, there is, yeah. <laughs> One of the one of the absolute classic self-referential uh, points in here, where McBain explains Hitchcock's theory of the difference between shock and suspense, and also as a go at the birds for being a silly exercise in science fiction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he likes all the Hitchcock's films apart from the birds. <laughs> yeah, I can't remember which character it is. That. It's the, is that... the deaf man, I think. Or is it? <laughs> yeah, and. We get to a situation to wrap it up where Dick Gennaro, who's stressed out about whether he should buy a present for the party that he's been invited to, accidentally um, discovers a bomb and does he unplug it? Yeah, Is he does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's a bit completely inadvertently saves the day. But that's weird. He buys uh, Lieutenant Burns some pajamas, but in his own size. <laughs> <laughs> it's just. He's a powerful idiot. I really enjoy uh, Gennaro. And, I mean, I, I enjoy him generally anyway because he's always pretty hilarious. But it, it, it's, it, it's a bit of a tour de force for Gennaro, this one, yeah. isn't it? He's just such a hopeless little nerd. His logic for buying pyjamas is that he can stuff them inside his coat and then only take them out if it, depending on whether the other guests have bought gifts as well. Yeah. But then he realises he's going to be too hot. <laughs> With the, his coat on and his pyjamas stuffed inside that he then goes and hides it in another room. It's just it's just really funny. Yeah. I was laughing my head off reading that. It is daft. And plus, he, when he discovers the bomb, he drops it on his foot, the foot that he shot himself in at one point as well, which presumably still gives him jip now and again. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was very funny. And then he, well, he, he, prior to that, to try and f- find out whether he should be getting a, um, a present or not, he phones up uh, Harriet, doesn't he? Uh, Lieutenant Burns's wife, yeah. who it appears these invitations have come from. And she very clearly tells him she doesn't know what on earth he's on about. And he just is totally incapable of <laughs> understanding yeah. that. He thinks she's, she's being discreet on some kind of like cunning adult level that he doesn't quite get so he, he tries to sort of pretend that he knows what she's on about as well and <laughs> and she just thinks that he's he's got some serious mental issues and uh yeah marvelous yeah it's great so let's try and sum this up and give it our ratings and then i'll tell everyone about some contemporary reviews of the story as well so i will go first this time mm-hmm. and yeah, it's about as straight ahead as these books get, really. I mean, there's a lot going on to follow in terms of date, event, date, event, but there's not much variety in what it is. But after the last three books, this is quite a sort of nice relief because they were big books, including some quite 
difficult stuff to to process you know as a reader this is just it's 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 a holiday special again you know it's it's set at christmas it's it's silly it's got your recurring character in i'm not you know there's there's not masses to recommend in terms of cleverness of plotting no but like i say it's got it's got a few little interesting nods it's got that stuff about parker so i mean for me it's not going to be massively highly rated but i'll probably give it a i don't know a six out of ten sixty police shields from me i think and i'll come to uh morgan okay well um I've, I've always had a bit of a soft spot for this. I, as I recall, I think this was because I read everything completely out of order. This was the first Deaf Man book that I read. You know, you're always in for a good time with, with a Deaf Man book. The, the different rules apply, really. It's all always going to be a bit sillier. It's not going to be any kind of gritty realism, which we've had plenty of uh, over of the last late, few yeah. books. As you say, it, there's not like massive amount going on in there, but... I think it's loads of fun. Uh, I'm going to go up a bit. I'm going to give it a, a good, solid 72 police shields. 72. Okay, Steve-O. Yeah, it's, it's good fun. And uh, like Morgan says, uh, normal rules don't really seem to apply, do they, when it, when it comes to the deaf man? It's all fairly crackers. There's some fairly weird, I don't know, you know, when he has the... Um, the sexy time passages, they're, slight, they're mm. slightly awkward, aren't they? I don't know, they're always... And you don't know whether they're that essential, really. But, um, yeah, I think I think I would go 72 as well. I, th- I think it's a seven, kind of a 7 out of 10 entry. Okay. Yeah, I very much look forward to it. And I must admit, in reading it back, it wasn't quite as brilliant as I... I remembered it being... No, I, I, I think I was remembering it as more of like a kind of 8.5 out of 10. It's definitely more of a 7. I, I'm yeah. Totally happy with it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly yeah. So, uh, but yeah, de- decent nonetheless. Okay. Uh, so, yes, I'll go 72 as well. Which gives us a grand Kenneth total of 68. Please shield. No rounding required Oof. in this instance. And to give you a flavour of what people thought at the time... Gene M. White in the Washington Post, in a review where it's constantly referred to as light black horses. Light? Which I don't know if it's like a copying transcription error from a typed review or something like that. Yeah, it be, wasn't it? But it's, called, it's twice referred to as light black horses, which makes no sense whatsoever. Light black. Not grey, but light black. Yeah. <laughs> yeah light, light black. <laughs> oh, they just don't weigh much. Oh, yeah. Black light horses. Underbed black horses. <laughs> but yeah, she just basically mentions that the deaf man's back, that it's uh, a long running series, and then in in light black horses, he switches the narrative back and forth from the deaf man devising his diabolical plot to the befuddled policeman trying to decipher the messages. The result is a choppy narrative without focus, and the black comedy is uncharacteristically heavy handed. So, not massively keen there. Someone in the Daily Mail, I don't know who wrote this, said in a one-paragraph review, distressing signs of dirty old manhood from Ed McBain. Yeah. He brings back super villainy in The Deaf Man, splendid suspense, puzzles and wit, marred by a gratuitous soft porn element. Well, yeah, 
Yeah, that's fair enough. It's not totally unreal. We have skirted around that a little bit, but there is a bit of that. But it's certainly, right, it's right at the beginning, really, isn't it? And then it kind of just gets forgotten about. So when you finish the book, you you can't really remember it, but he does lay it on thick in the yeah, first. It's, it's quite unnecessary, isn't it? Yeah, T.J. Binion writing in the Times Literary Supplement in 1986. Good name, T.J. Binion. Yeah. Uh, opens his review by saying, the good news is this isn't another of Ed McBain's glossy Florida fairy stories. So this person clearly doesn't like the Matthew Hope novels. Uh, he does say the bad news is that it's a story about the deaf man, that boring master criminal. Oh. And this review also makes mention of, in brackets, surprisingly, some mild pornography. So, yeah, T.J. Binion, not a fan of the deaf man. Whereas uh, Marcel Berlin's in The Times, not The Times Literary Supplement, two different things. Marcel Berlin's says, uh, his presence, this is the deaf man, as in previous books, provokes engrossing tension. So, (laughs) not a mixed bag particularly, but yeah, it's... If you like light black horses, just watch watch out for the porn in it. So, there we go. That's that then. We will be back in the bonus episode to discuss book covers and much more about 1985. And after that, we will be moving on to the 39th book in the series from 1987, which is Poison. So until then, I'm going to say goodbye and Steve-o. Goodbye. And Morgan. Fairly well. Bye. Bye. Bye.